This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Russia's war on Ukraine has caused a massive exodus of refugees within Europe. Contrary to how many nations have closed their borders to those fleeing wars in Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen and other non-European nations, Ukrainians are generally being welcomed with open arms. Many leaders and even journalists are fueling the notion that Ukrainian refugees are somehow more deserving than their non-white counterparts. Here is CBS News segment correspondent Charlie Degata on February 26th. Uh, tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. That's a CBS correspondent making statements that the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association pointed out as an example of, quote, racist news coverage that ascribes more importance to some victims of war over others. We turn now to Serena Parekh. She is a professor of philosophy and director of politics, philosophy and economics at Northeastern University. Her books include No Refuge Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis and Refugees and the Ethics of Forced Displacement. Welcome to the program, Serena. Thank you so much for having me. So first, what do you make of this language that we're hearing from journalists like the one that I just played, but also some European leaders? Um, they don't even seem to be hiding their obvious bias. It's a very interesting moment for those of us who have followed the response of European countries around refugees for a long time. I, I think it's important to separate the response to refugees, which is something we ought to endorse and uh, applaud, very positive, from some of the underlying assumptions that have allowed leaders to treat refugees from other countries differently. In particular, some of the ones that you mentioned, that Ukrainians are civilized, Middle Eastern African refugees are uncivilized, Ukrainians are educated, highly skilled, hard workers, um, people from the Middle East Africa are not educated, poor, and by extension would be an economic drain on the European Union. And a, another assumption I've heard floating around is that, of course, Ukrainians are not terrorists and they're not criminals. And so we can let them in safely without having to worry about screening them. Whereas um, the stereotype being that people from the Middle East and from Africa um, are criminals, possibly terrorists, or at the very best, merely economic migrants trying to undermine the asylum process and get here illegally. And all of those, of course, are found are, are racialized assumptions about these particular groups, largely unsustainable by any evidence, um, education, culture, etc. And so I think what I'm interested in, in thinking about in terms of this debate is highlighting these assumptions that politicians and journalists and the general public to some extent are making about non-Western refugees to try to point out that they are mistaken and in fact are owed the same treatment that Ukrainian refugees are being given by Poland, Hungary, Austria, Romania, etc. And it also shows that the European Union can facilitate 
the we the, can take in large numbers of asylum seekers and can do so in a relatively efficient way. Is there also, you think, um, double standard when it comes to wars that NATO countries have played a role in versus, you know, Russia, um, the refugees from Afghanistan and from Iraq are, ref are fleeing a war that Europe had a part in and Europe can sort of distance itself from this war saying, it's Russia who's the bad guy, will accept the refugees almost as a, a political act, which of course is, is disheartening because refugees and their treatment should never be politicized, right? According to most international laws. They should never be politicized, absolutely. And they have been from the moment the international refugee system was put into place in almost every context. Uh, whether or not we see a group as economic migrants, so poor but not suffering persecution, or refugees, has all, often been the result of the political context that they're fleeing from. You know, you can contrast people fleeing Cuba and people fleeing Haiti coming into the United States as a really sharp contrast there. Um, but I would say that there is a difference in the um, in the current conflict in Russia and the response of Eastern European countries in the following sense, Poland, Hungary, um, other countries in Eastern and Central Europe know firsthand, have experienced firsthand what it's like to live under Soviet aggression and Soviet oppression. So in a certain sense, there's a cultural and a historical memory that's linking their opposition to the current war in Russia right now. But I don't want to underplay. I mean, I think it is it is very, very important. And you're absolutely right to point out that we discount the roles that Western countries play in these other conflicts and therefore feel less, uh, feel, feel less compassion for refugees from those conflicts. And I think that's absolutely right. But it is, in another sense, understandable why people feel so connected to this, this war. That to me at least seems more acceptable than to say, well, it's because they're civilized and we prefer people from civilized countries rather than um, non-civilized people who we might not trust. So I think there's a lot of different motivations at work in, in people who are supporting refugees from Ukraine um, who were openly hostile to refugees from Syria. Um, racism plays a role, the political history plays a role. Um, in a certain sense, it is very human to feel connections to people that you perceive to be like you and to feel more remote from people you perceive as being not like you. Which but is a good argument for newsrooms to diversify their journalists <laughs> because Absolutely. You know, a lot and of, the, a lot of our the corporate journalists, corporate media journalists like to portray themselves as objective. But the clip that I just played shows that this, you know, white uh, West uh, European American uh, journalist felt like he could relate to Ukrainians on a personal level, but he didn't admit that that was what was going on, that assumption. Right. And a lot of non-white journalists have, have noticed this and felt it very deeply in their, yeah. in their bones, the, the injustice. And you're absolutely right. How we perceive people is constructed, and it's constructed in part through the media. And you could imagine a scenario in which Syrians were constructed as being connected to us, as highly educated, highly skilled,
skilled middle class people who were the victims of an authoritarian power hungry dictator similar to the way you know ukrainians are being constructed and the commonalities we share among people as being highlighted rather than the things that are dissimilar say people's religion uh, people's ethnicity and so forth Let's um, talk about uh, what the United States has or hasn't done. When the Taliban in Afghanistan last year took over that nation, the U.S. troops withdrew. There was an exodus of Afghan refugees. The Biden administration, at least on the surface, appears to be more welcoming to refugees than the Trump administration was. We have seen large numbers of Afghan refugees being resettled here in the United States. Um, That said, we now seem to have this rare Democratic-Republican consensus census as a bipartisan group of senators is calling on the Biden administration to ensure that Ukrainians that are in the United States under temporary protected status or TPS be allowed to remain the same treatment not afforded to or very easily I should say afforded to refugees from places like Haiti or El Salvador right um yes and no I mean Haitians do Some Haitians do have access to TPS. TPS was put into place um, after the um, assassination last year of the president of Haiti. And El Salvadorians have had TPS um, periodically throughout their history in the U.S. I would be surprised. But they've been threatened to have it. They've always been politically threatened and and it's always been tenuous. Yeah, I think that's true of TPS generally. So it's temporary protected status. And what this allows the country to do is to revoke it when they feel that the status is no longer necessary, in distinction to refugee status, which is allows you a pathway to citizenship and is effectively a permanent status. Mm. So it's a way of protecting, helping people who uh, the government doesn't believe falls fully into the category of refugee and needing permanent settlement, but also cannot be returned home. Uh, so I think TPS is is perfect for the Ukrainian situation at the moment. And it depending on how the conflict goes, if it ends up being a long term conflict, and I'm talking about this two years from now, or three years from now, then temporary protected status ought to be reconsidered. And you're absolutely right that different groups have different access to permanent status in the US. So who can apply for refugee status or asylum once they're in the country. Um, And Haitians tend to generally not have access to asylum and refugee status or at least have their claims frequently denied whereas other groups in similar situations will have those claims recognized what should happen in terms of policies both in europe and the united states to ensure equal treatment of refugees regardless of where they're from and compassionate treatment of all refugees whether ukrainian or afghan when such wars cause massive, you know, numbers of people to flee? I think that has to happen at the level of politics and the media. Officially, everyone ought to be treated equally. The Refugee Convention defines people in terms of the persecution they're fleeing, not their, not where they're coming from or what religion they are. But what we've seen over and over again is politicians using refugees, villainizing refugees for political gain. And it's, of course, easy to villainize people 
as other, as dangerous, as not like us, as coming to destroy us, and therefore we need to protect you. And I think this, this gives rise to a larger sense of xenophobia, fear of outsiders, and then in particular fear of refugees who are you know, among the most traumatized people in the world and probably the group least likely to do harm to anyone who's willing to help them. But nonetheless, we have the sense that some groups are dangerous, uh, some groups are not worth protecting because they're used to violence, this is just what happens in their region, which is of course cultural, racial prejudice. Um, and then by contrast, we help the people that we believe are uh, entitled, more entitled to, to help. So I think what needs to happen is a very complex, multi-layered response to refugees that really fights the xenophobia and racism that emerge whenever you have um, people from the Middle East, from Africa, from Asia, in need of help and support. So are there frameworks already in place that just need to be more equally applied? Absolutely. So we see, for example, Polish being pushing back African and Indian students trying to cross the border over the Ukraine into Poland. And that's absolutely prohibited in, in every official document. But what's probably happened is that that didn't get passed down to the border guards who simply thought, well, no, this is uh, Ukrainians are being evacuated. We can't let these other people who we've spent years trying to keep out of Poland, we can't let them into our countries. Uh, so it seems from what I can gather from, from reading and listening to different sources, a matter of communication that they got, the border guards were not told to apply the rules equally um, eventually. And now this seems to have cleared up and uh, Africans, Indians, Asians are being allowed to leave um, Ukraine and enter Poland. And then finally, what would you, what do you think needs to happen here in the United States? Does the United States need to improve its approach on refugees beyond what Biden is doing right now? I, I think so. I would have answered that in almost any historical period in the United States that we could be doing more for refugees. Um, the Trump administration though, it's hard to overstate the damage it did to the refugee resettlement program and all of the institutions and mechanisms that had been built up over decades to resettle refugees into the United States. So not only did he cut off and, and severely lower the number of refugees who are allowed in, he dismantled many of the institutions that helped facilitate refugee resettlement. And my understanding is that these are slowly building back up, but they take a lot of time and so much damage was done to them. So they're not yet in a place to actually be able to easily facilitate the resettlement of large numbers of people. And historically, we've been a leader in resettling refugees. I hope that we get back to that number that we were, the number of refugees that we were resettling prior to the Trump administration. But we also have implemented a number of deterrence policies. So these are policies that are designed to discourage people from coming directly to the United States to claim asylum. You know, the child separation policy under the Trump administration is the most egregious example of this. But policies like Remain in Mexico, which have been upheld by the courts, also are designed to discourage people from coming into the United States and returns desperately needy asylum seekers to really appalling, awful conditions. Um, 
you know, unhygienic, violent, dangerous, lacking material resources. Um, so they're forced to live, uh, you know, on the border of Mexico in these informal settlements while they wait to enter the United States. So there is absolutely a lot that can be done, but it is a really slow process. In some sense, I'm sympathetic to the Biden administration. In other senses, in other sense, I wish he would be doing more and making this more of a priority. Um, and of course, you know, politically, there's a challenge because whatever policies Biden is going to be putting in place there, they are probably clearly going to be better than if there were a Republican administration. So people are hesitant of being too critical of the Biden administration. But my hope is that there's so many good people working in this administration that we will be able to really play a, a moral leadership role in the world when it comes to resettling refugees, whether they are from uh, Ukraine, if ultimately Ukrainians want to be resettled in the United States or Afghanistan or in any of the number, number of lingering ongoing refugee crises around the world. I want to thank you so much, Serena, for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Sonali. It's a pleasure to be here. My guest has been Serena Parekh, Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Politics, Philosophy and Economics Program at Northeastern Universities. Her books include No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis, and Refugees and the Ethics of Forced Displacement. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.